You know, I, as I was just saying to the kids, I think it's, uh, it's very clear to all of us that our children and our grandchildren will grow up uh, in an America that's far different than the America that you and I knew when we were kids. Uh, our children and grandchildren will uh, never know the America that had once prohibited the usage of four-letter words on television. They'll never know the America where you could uh, leave your doors unlocked and didn't think twice about leaving your keys in the ignition if you ran into the store on a quick errand. Uh, our children and grandchildren will never know the America where business is closed on Sunday uh, and where uh, schools never plan ball games or extracurricular activities that would conflict with their ability to attend worship. And, you know, when you look at the aggregate of all of those things together, do you ever wonder uh, what your ancestors, what, what our parents would think uh, if they could see what's happened to America since they passed? You ever wonder? And I have a feeling that they would, as the, as the saying goes, that they'd be rolling over in their graves, don't you? And probably they would be asking, what happened to all of the things that we worked so hard to build? And in our uh, text today, uh, in our extended look through this incredible book of Psalms, and for those of you that are joining us for the first time, uh, we're going to be going through each psalm. We were up to Psalm 11 this week, so you know what we're going to be talking about for the next, what, two and a half years. Uh, but uh, as we take this extended look through the Psalms, we find that same question because in today's Psalm, in Psalm 11, David asks a very thought-provoking and sobering question, and he says, if the foundations are destroyed, what can the righteous do? So if you're following along in your Bibles, as I encourage you to, because it's important not just to see this on the screen or for me not just to tell you, but it's vitally important that you see it in your own Bible that you have at home, uh, Psalm 11 which superscription reads to the choir master of David, beginning in verse 1. And David writes, In the Lord I take refuge. How can you say to my soul, flee like a bird to your mountain? For behold, the wicked bend the bow. They have fitted their arrow to the string to shoot in the dark at the upright in heart. If the foundations are destroyed, what can the righteous do? The Lord is in his holy temple. The Lord's throne is in heaven. His eyes see, his eyelids test the children of man. The Lord tests the righteous, but his soul hates the wicked and the one who loves violence. Let him rain coals of fire on the wicked. Fire and sulfur and a scorching wind shall be the portion of their cup. For the Lord is righteous. He loves righteous deeds. The upright shall behold his face. So I want to take just a minute uh, and, and have us think about the unthinkable. So suppose last Sunday in the midst of that, uh, that storm that we endured, or maybe the one that's coming, that it had not just passed on by us, but had worked itself up uh, into a powerful and very dangerous uh, F4 or F5 tornado. And that that tornado struck our church building dead center. Uh, peeled back uh, the roof like a, a pull top from a can of soup, that the giant windows imploded and the entire uh, interior of the building is deluged with rainwater and mud and, and flying debris. Now, obviously, we'd be devastated, right? But in the aftermath of all of that damage, when all the damage had been evaluated, we find that the, the walls and the air conditioning and the, the wiring and 
Uh, the floors underneath the soaked carpet were all still intact. So despite the terrible devastation, we'd still have hope, wouldn't we? We'd still have hope that we could rebuild our church building on the same location because the foundations of it weren't destroyed. But now just suppose for a minute instead of that tornado that a huge sinkhole opened underneath the center of the aisle right there. And our building began to sink and the walls began to buckle until finally the shifting of the earth underneath caused the foundation to crack in half and pull the whole center of the building down into it. Now again, we'd be devastated, but this time even more so because in this case, the foundation would be destroyed and there would be little, uh, if any, hope at all of us rebuilding on this location, would there? But you know, when David says, if the foundations are destroyed, what can the righteous do? He's not talking about the foundation of a building, but rather the foundation of a nation. And David is literally asking, when wicked and godless men are destroying the very foundations upon which a nation is built, what can we as the people of God do about it? And as we think about that and, and about what's happening in our nation today, uh, we can really identify with David's frustration, can't we? Uh, this is definitely not the moral nation that our forefathers had in mind when they framed the Declaration of Independence, the Constitution, the Bill of Rights. But, you know, regardless of whether we're talking about David's Israel of long ago or about our America today, there's one biblical truth that never changes, and that is when a nation destroys the godly foundation upon which she was built, she cannot and will not stand for very long. Did you ever think about that? Did you ever really stop and give any thought to why nations fall? Oh, you know, historians attribute a lot of reasons to the collapse of civilizations, a lot of things like disease or demographics or mass immigration, economic decline, foreign invasion... But we have to ask, could there be a deeper underlying reason? And unless you say to yourself this morning, well, Pastor, I came for a, a sermon, not a history lesson or a, a civics lesson. Uh, the truth is that the two are very often intertwined. Uh, and using both of them, we need to consider the more immediate question, could America fall? Now, just by way of a little context, in 1790, the year before the U.S. Constitution was ratified, the eminent historian Edward Gibbon published uh, his final volume of the history of the decline and fall of the Roman Empire. Uh, and in it, he identified five causes behind the fall of Rome, one of history's greatest empires uh, and one that's rightly been compared to America. And in his list of causes, uh, he didn't list demographics. He didn't list insufficient technology or climate change. But his first fundamental factor that he listed was the breakdown of the family. And then he listed increased taxation, an insatiable craving for pleasure, and the decay of religion. But you know, for about the last 50 years, many uh, politicians and most educators in our world reject that belief. Because you know, during the last two centuries, generally speaking, America was a Christian nation. And, you know, of course, we've, we've always had our incidents of, of failures and, and flaws and vices, but society as a whole held its citizens and its families and its leaders to a high moral standard, to the moral standard of the Bible. Uh, and many of them rightly believed that it was, it was only if a majority of families in this country were God-fearing and obedient 
and faithful could this nation actually survive. And you know, in this strong family structure produced virtuous children. And these children grew up to be good fathers, and good mothers, and good teachers, and ministers, and judges, and, and engineers, and orators, and statesmen. You know, it wasn't so very long ago that policymakers understood the connection between the family breakdown and problems in society like alcoholism and drug addiction and welfare addiction and juvenile delinquency and violent crime. You know, they really believed the Bible when it claimed that only nations that obey the moral law of God are blessed. But around the turn of the 20th century, you know, educators in the United States and in Britain began rejecting that idea. Rejecting the idea that the laws of morality are eternal and they're unchanging. Rejecting the idea that commandments like honor your father and mother and thou shalt not commit adultery began to sound too old-fashioned. People abandoned the absolute morality of the word of God and instead they embraced the evolving morality of men like Charles Darwin and Sigmund Freud. And as a result, the moral landscape of today's nation has now utterly been transformed. And the family unit has never been the same. Particularly when the breakdown of the home also saw a rise in homosexuality. You know, if you look back, even a cursory glance through history will tell you that no great empire has ever survived it. Not the Greeks, with all of their knowledge of philosophy. Not the Romans, with their might and military power. Not the German Empire of Kaiser Wilhelm I with its unwavering commitment to education and innovation. None of these great civilizations lasted for long when homosexuals gained places of authority in the halls of government and acceptance in the minds of the cultural elite. Because, brothers and sisters, God's plan for marriage and for the family is crystal clear, and it is the only thing that holds societies together. Genesis 2 tells us that God's intention for marriage is that one man and one woman be married for one lifetime. But you know, the 1970s public opposition to homosexuality began to melt away and, uh, and as society embraced the notion that morality is subjective, it changed to a whole new era. It signaled a whole new era. An era where marriage is not defined as a divinely sanctioned partnership between a man and a woman. An era where marriage could be defined as any sexual relationship between consenting partners. And instead of viewing homosexuality as a sin, the majority in U.S. and Britain now consider it a human right. Some go even further. I've even heard it said they assert now that the family, the traditional family, could be harmful and that its very structure is a type of slavery and servitude of women and children. Isn't that crazy? You know, broken homes and illegitimate children now are so common that it's considered insensitive to even suggest that individuals like that might be at a disadvantage. And rather than accepting the notion that society is falling short of the biblical standards, we just went ahead and changed the standard. So what do we do? Where do we turn? Do you know, David's friends had some advice for him. If you were listening to the text, they said, flee like a bird to your mountain. For behold, the wicked bend the bow. They've fitted their arrow to the string to shoot in the dark at the upright in heart. I mean, his, basically, his friends told him, run away, right? Run away. And you know, so many people seek to solve their problems by running away from them, don't they? 
Have you ever met anybody like that? Have you ever been anybody like that? You know, spouses run away from their partners to divorce court. Children run away from their parents to the dead ends of the street. Parents run away from their responsibility of unintended pregnancies. But you know what the problem of trying to run away from our problems is? We always take our real problem with us, and that's ourselves. But you know, David faced down that temptation, and he confronted that fear successfully because he remembered some things about his God. He wrote in verse 4, The Lord is in his holy temple. The Lord's throne is in heaven. His eyes see. His eyelids test the children of man. And in that verse, the holy temple is the the same as God's holy throne in heaven here. And, And we need to be reminded that the Lord, who is the head of this church in all things, is also the King of kings and the Lord of lords of all nations on the earth and of all the stuff that happens in them. You know, ours is not a God who's just in charge on Sunday mornings. He's not just in charge on Sunday mornings, but then he's got to bow to the whims of human rulers on Monday through Saturday. He is king right now. He's in charge even now. Even now, not a sparrow falls to the ground apart from his control, and neither does one single human being because God is in charge. Now, now again, yes, I mean, it's true that this present age is evil, unspeakably so at times, but it doesn't mean that God has lost his sovereignty. Rest assured, as we read, his eyes behold, his eyelids test the sons of men. And you know, to me, that sounds like uh, just another way of saying that even with his eyes closed, God can see right through you, right? Even his eyelids can see right through you. God is watching, whether we believe it or not. And the truth is, he doesn't always like what he sees. That's why we read in verse 5, the Lord tests the righteous, but his soul hates the wicked and the one who loves violence. And you know, if this wasn't uh, already where the message turns politically incorrect in a big way, uh, as, as if it hadn't already, uh, and not simply incorrect where the culture is concerned, but perhaps even within the church, but regardless, the Word of God proclaims it, and then obviously so must we. And that is the fact that, although you don't hear it very often in the church, there are things that God hates. There are things that God hates. Yes, God is love. Love is of God. But the angels in heaven don't circle that heavenly throne with their, their faces and their feet covered, crying out, loving, loving, loving is the Lord God Almighty. Do you know what they cry out? Do you know what those angels cry out? They cry out, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. Holy. And think about it. If a holy God didn't hate sin and violence and wickedness with a burning hatred, he'd lose the right and cease to be holy himself. But, brothers and sisters, God is holy, and so he hates sin. And that hatred of sin is also related to his pursuit of justice in human affairs. And our founding fathers, as imperfect as at times they were, wanted to build godly principles into the foundation of this country, believing that, as they said, we hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal and endowed by their Creator with certain inalienable rights. And then they took and they wanted to pin those rights, as they said, to the laws of nature and nature's God. And you know, in his letter to the Romans, the Apostle Paul couldn't agree more. He he wrote, speaking about the people of his day and about ours, he said, they know the truth about God because he's made it obvious to them. For ever since the world was created, people have seen the earth and sky. Through everything God made, 
they can clearly see his invisible qualities, his eternal power and divine nature. So they have no excuse for not knowing God. Yes, they knew God, but they wouldn't worship him as God or even give him thanks. And they began to think up foolish ideas about what God is like. And as a result, their minds became dark and confused. Claiming to be wise, they instead became utter fools. And did you notice the order of this, what Paul, how he kind of lines it up? He's saying, we're here in a world in which truth from God is literally breaking out all around us. But humanity is busy covering it up, covering it up and hiding it and suppressing it and keeping it from being prominent and dominant in our thinking and keeping ourselves intentionally blinded to the only truth that can really, really provide life and liberty and freedom and godliness. And the nature of the truth is being suppressed is the existence of a holy and sovereign God of eternal power and majesty who created mankind and who has the right, the only right, to determine the boundaries of right and wrong. And you know what? Everybody knows that whether they want to admit it or not. Because the scripture says there is available to every person a certain knowledge of God. A knowledge obtained by observing his works in creation. Because, you know, just like we can learn a lot about a writer from studying their works or a painter from his painting, so too we can learn a lot about God from the wonders he's made. We can learn, the Apostle Paul says, of God's eternal power and his divine nature. Now think about it for a minute. Who can, who can look at the raging power of Niagara Falls and not be struck by the power of the one that created it? Who can study the power of the atom and not be impressed with the infinite power of its creator? Who can ponder the vastness of the universe without concluding that someone far greater than mortal man was the originator of all of it? We know all of those things, but all of us, you and me and everyone listening to this message, we were all born with a want to. We were all born with the attitude, just like Marshall shared in Bible study. Uh, we all just want what we want when we want it, right? And it doesn't take long for that to seep into the culture. And all of this begins with a society that says, we know what's right. We just don't care. Don't talk to us about God. Don't talk to us about Christ. Don't talk to us about sin. Keep it to yourself. Worship Jesus on your own time. Because, brothers and sisters, we live in a day and age when people look at their Creator and flat out tell Him no. Right? No. No, God. Uh, we know You have plans for us, but we got plans of our own. Proving that the problem is not ignorance of the truth, but the suppression of it. And you know what the danger here is? That when you stop believing in God, it's not that you end up believing in nothing. It's that you rather end up with the possibility that you could believe almost anything. And Paul says, so God abandoned them to do whatever shameful things their heart desired. Meaning really that to a great extent, the judgment of God on humanity is humanity getting exactly what we want. Whatever that particular want happens to be. Because brothers and sisters, every sin, the public ones and the private ones, the socially acceptable ones and the ones that we don't talk about in polite company, Every sin, as R.C. Sproul always says, is treason and cosmic rebellion against the majesty of Christ. It's spitting in the face of your Creator. And when we do that, when humanity rejects God's own revelation of Himself, He gives us over to idolatry. 
to worship the things that God made instead of the God who made them. And when humanity rejects God and his purpose for the family, God gives people over to practice the unnatural. Their humanity wants God to leave them alone. They want none of his control. So God gives them exactly what they ask for while they're here on earth and also an eternity of separation from him in the future. Because, you know, the truth is that every single sin, every one of them that's ever been committed or ever will be committed, will one day be paid for in full by one of two ways. Either by the substitutionary death of Jesus Christ on the cross or by the punishment of hell for the sinner that committed it. And when you, when you put that all together, what a terrifying thought it is then that men and women freely suppress the truth of the gospel. Because, you know, when they do that, hell is just the culmination of those folks giving, being given from God exactly what they ask for. Now, I can never remember uh, which of the founders said it, but one of them said, freedom is not licensed to do anything we want, but the liberty to do that which is right. And, you know, the freedom of Christ is like that. Because it binds men and women to him so that we can experience the fullest kind of freedom, which is to become a slave of Jesus Christ. And you know, even though our Bill of Rights grants me a hundred freedoms, freedom of assembly and freedom of speech and freedom of personal property in this world, yet as a citizen of the kingdom, my time is not my own. So that I can be free to fulfill God's royal law. You know, I'm free to say... Uh, just anything I want. But the truth is, I'm bound to speak the truth of God in love, whether people accept it or not. And even though, by law, I can't be deprived of life or liberty or property without the due process of law, and I live in a country that's the envy of the world, the only thing that I really have to boast about is in the cross of Jesus Christ. And so for you and I today, it's our sacred duty to speak and to act, and to love our country, and to love everyone in it, but with our eyes wide open. And as one author said, to love my country too much to see it complicit in its own destruction. You know, that's the tension that we live in as citizens of the kingdom and servants of the king, is to, to hate the things we see going on around us enough to want to see them change, but to love our country and all the people in it enough to realize that they are infinitely worth changing. We do that with open eyes. We do that with an informed mind. We do it with the courage to condemn, but with a heart that really cares for them. We do it with the righteous conviction and the tender compassion of Jesus Christ until we reach our eternal city. That city bought with the precious offering of His blood and the sacrifice of His body, murdered for us so that all of our ways are mended in Him. And then David In his final words in the text today, he actually gives us a beautiful confession of faith. He says, for the Lord is righteous. He loves righteous deeds and the upright shall behold his face. You know, brothers and sisters, God has blessed America. And despite all of our nation's problems, it's still the greatest nation on earth to live in. And uh, and even as many of our uh, traditional foundations may be crumbling around us, we can't become afraid. We can't lose hope. But instead, we have to take refuge in the foundation that can never be destroyed. That's the foundation of our God. The foundation of our Lord Jesus Christ. The foundation of God's Word, where through the power of the Holy Spirit, by grace alone, we behold His face and find the promise that although today, you know, we may look at the world around us and and kind of fail to piece together everything that's happening, 
That's not always going to be the case. You know, both David and Paul, in their words, affirm that testimony that Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians 13, 12. And he said, now we see things imperfectly like puzzling reflections in a mirror, but then, then we'll see things in perfect clarity. He said, all that I know now is partial and incomplete, but then I will know everything completely, just as God knows me completely. Amen? Let's pray together. Father God, we thank you so much, Lord, that although we see so many things crumbling around us, Lord, we know this world is not our home. We thank you, Father, that we know we're looking for that eternal city, for that bride of Christ that will come down. We're looking, Lord, for that new Jerusalem and our home with you. And so, Lord, uh, instead of fixing our eyes on all the things around us, uh, we choose today, Lord, to fix our eyes on you. And we thank you, Lord, for your love. We thank you for the promise of the return of your son. And we look for it today, Father, with joy. In Jesus' name, amen.